0: Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 4 of Scene From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out scenefromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes, follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk about disaster monitoring and response. Let's do the news then on the
1: 14th of October, 2020, how time flies. I think the most interesting thing that's happened since we last spoke is that Sentinel 2 is now free again, but this time as a COG, cloud-optimized GeoTIFF via AWS, and thanks to Element84 for making this happen. Previously, it was freely available. I guess we should step back a bit. It's open data. It's freely available to download as you choose from various pages including uh, the sci-hub but accessing the cloud for aws was previously opened and then it became request to pays and it was on a um, jpeg 2000 format which isn't universally liked to say the least but now they've processed it all up and we've got it accessible as cogs and this is massive really because we've got level 2a scenes ready to to stream into gis software as needed they're available from april 2017 over europe and globally from december 2018 so it's not the full data set but i think this is massive and and it's a it's a
0: huge step forward we're both big proponents of cogs and of sort of cloud native formats in general but i know that you in particular, have been a a real fan of of COGS and, and the types of things that you can do with it. So am I right in thinking that with this service that's now available, you'll be able to open up sort of parts of images within something like QGIS? Yeah. That's okay, right. cool. Yeah. That really does open it up to a whole new audience, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was almost like a little kind of silent release almost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and when I saw it, kudos to Carl Barron to pointing me at it and the, the rest of the world at it, of course, not <laughs> just <versus> me. <laughs> 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 but I was sort of I, I sort of like, you know, casually browsing through uh, Twitter as you do in an afternoon or whatever, and I was like, what? It's like, what? Did I misread this? And finally now there really is no excuse you don't have to download this stuff
0: note to self don't download
1: 2021 no more downloading the no downloading year
0: a little bit of podcast news. So quite a few of you have been asking for a while whether or not the podcast could be made available through Spotify. And yep, I apologize for the fact that it's taken rather a while. But uh, as of, I think, yesterday, the podcast is now available on Spotify as well. So if that's where you get your podcast from, or if that's where your friends get their podcast from, tell them and you can go there and download it direct into your Spotify player.
1: Do you know where people are mostly accessing it from?
0: Apple Podcasts is the main one. Okay. We have a lot of American listeners. Actually it was quite cool. I did a, a tweet on the EO scene from account I think last week that was the flags of various different countries that are listed now in our stats as to where people come from and there was well over 30 odd flags.
1: Is it harder to do all the flags in Twitter than it was to work out the stats. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Awesome. Um, okay, cool. I wanted to talk about the machine learning for earth observation market map that Radiant Earth Foundation shared. They do have a whole series of infographics and it's very, very useful resource. I think it's a Creative Commons One license. Anyway, so this is the next in the series of fantastic infographics that they've put together and this is ones interactive. I guess for newcomers who are interested in a specific categorization of this machine learning landscape for earth observation you can click in and and have a look at whether you're interested in labeling or analytics or data suppliers and anything like that so it's really good you get a good good sense of of what's going on and 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 really the sort of size of the ecosystem yeah it's a competitive marketplace
0: yeah it's a it's a nice mix as well actually if you if you look at some of the um logos that are on there there's a mix of like really, really early startups, but also some uh, long-term players. And then there's also a mix of really small companies and then massive players like Maxar and Esri and what have you. And that's on the commercial side. And then similarly on the, the sort of non-commercial side, again, you've got this brilliant mix of governmental organizations like uh, Cicero and NOAA, NASA, World Bank is in there, like huge, huge organizations. But again, and much smaller open source projects like QGIS and and you've got OpenEO in there and OpenStreetMaps in there. And it's just really brilliant to see the diversity and the depth, I think, of the players in this area. It's only one thing they've missed out. They need another little white group for, for media and then the podcast under that i thought you're gonna say they just missed out jogger <laughs> no I'm, I'm, i have under no illusion that i i play in <laughs> this arena <laughs> that'd be brilliant wouldn't it? someone could spoof, spoof it up and put your logo on all of them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I feel like I, i'm letting the side down a bit on the news this time around because I, I haven't really got that much to say in terms of new news stuff other than There is just so much stuff happening at the moment. And I was looking around just trying to see what sorts of things I could pick out and put into the news. And there's so many meetings and there's conferences and there's new data releases and there's launches of satellites, both big and small satellites. There's application examples of various different things. There's new platforms uh, coming online. There's old platforms having upgrades and putting out new products and services. I saw that Sentinel-3 has had a validation program. It was a citizen science validation program that's gone through. There's just a wealth of stuff at the moment that is uh, linked to Earth observation and everything that's happening but actually I got a little bit overwhelmed by it and I thought you know what I'm not going to pick any one of those things I'm just going to say on the podcast that there's a ton of stuff out there and if you're involved in any of it or you're going along to any of these meetings and conferences or you're helping push out any of the data releases and even cooler if you're launching a satellite but any of those things they're all absolutely stunning and you're you're really making a vibrant and an enjoyable Sector to work in. And it's just, I, I find it every day, it's brilliant to see the types of things that are happening. I think we need to be careful not to overhype stuff. But at the same time, when there's so much exciting stuff happening, you want to shout about it. So yeah, I, I just thought, like, maybe what I would say here is well done, Earth Observation. So there we go. Hurst says, choose your own news this month.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wanted to mention, says Bo, announcing that the going to head with a phase naught or zero study for sentinel hr so hr as a concept a uh, sentinel high resolution is the hr part so an optical satellite to complement the uh, existing sort of sentinel 2 data sets and there's some mock-ups on the, the page that, that we're going to share this has been a long time in in the making and i've been talking about it since 2018 one of the things that they're
0: looking to do is generate um elevation models from these sensors to be able to have one to two meter data that okay maybe is going to be acquired every 20 to 30 days but you have constant viewing angles that are close to nadir Hmm. Uh, it avoids some of the distortion and deregistration of various different objects and it really allows you to make sensible well-informed judgments on what is an actual change I think for, for a lot of use cases that's going to be so so important just being able to understand that a change is a change and it's not some artifact of the way it's being collected or the image or the fact that you're looking at different view angles or anything like that I think is massively important when you're trying to convince a policymaker to change policy in a country based on the data that you're showing them
1: yeah it's interesting to see where this is sort of progressing okay so that's that's it for the news
0: This episode, we are joined by Dave, who wears multiple hats, it seems. You are part of the SEOS Disasters Secretariat and also linked to GEO and the NASA Disasters Program. Maybe you can take a minute to introduce yourself and explain how all those different acronyms fit together.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and thank you again for having me on the podcast.
0: And I must say that your timing is is actually impeccable,
2: whether it's uh, deliberate or not, because just, uh, just yesterday, 13 October, was in fact the International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction. So, uh, cool. so it's a it, oh, wow. very timely podcast, I would imagine. So uh, I, suppose, I suppose fundamentally I'm a geospatial um, industry professional that was more or less thrown into the world of Earth observations a, a little bit later on in my professional career. But for about 10 years, I, I worked for a, a defense contractor working for a variety of different federal clients to include uh, FEMA and Department of Homeland Security and a few other federal agencies. And I have uh, eventually ended up very fortunately, I think, as a physical scientist with the NASA Earth Applied Sciences Disasters Program. So the NASA Applied Sciences Program mission, as it were, is to apply the insights of earth science to benefit the economy, security, health, and environment uh, globally. And I suppose more or less the value proposition there is that Our program makes those capital and programmatic investments to generate innovations that lower the technical and institutional barriers to using earth science information. And uh, of course, one of the thematically focused programs within applied sciences is our disasters program where we promote the use of earth observations to improve prediction, preparation, response, uh, risk reduction, essentially the, um, the life cycle, as it were, of disasters. Within that, uh, that role, I also do support both the Group on Earth Observations as well uh, and specifically within GEO, uh, one element anyway is the new Disaster Risk Reduction Working Group that was stood up earlier this calendar year, and, and also the Committee on Earth Observation Satellites or CEOS Working Group Disasters. Really briefly, GEO is a partnership of about 100 national governments and probably 100 plus additional participating organizations. A Re- relatively new category. It includes industry in the form of uh, GEO associate memberships as well. We all collectively are working towards a future where decisions and actions for the benefit of everyone are informed by both coordinated, comprehensive, and sustained Earth observations. And so, uh, distinct but a participating organization within GEO is CIOS. And CEOS is a mechanism to coordinate civil space-based EO programs globally and promote that data data exchange for the benefit of society and to inform decision-making across a broad range of Of topics to include our working group
0: on disasters. Wow, I hope you've got that all drawn down somewhere because that's a a tangled web of various different organizations. That's amazing. It can be. (laughs) One of my questions was going to be why are CEOS and GEO important in the context of disaster monitoring? But I guess, and and maybe you can broaden this out a bit, but I guess it's because they bring together that global partnership of different organizations within each of their organizations.
2: I think you're exactly right there that that really the the importance or or even value, um, and I'll I'll do my best to distinguish so I don't conflate between GOS <laughs> but geo geo anyway yeah it, really the the fundamental structure of geo allows these different worlds to come together and what I mean by that is you have the the scientific uh, and or research Earth observations community whether whether it be national space agencies or or even that you know academic insti- institutions. Allow them to come together with national civil protection agencies, um, more often than not, within the structure of GEO, as well as international aid and response organizations. And really, the, providing that crosswalk, I think, is so important. And ultimately, when success is found at various levels, it allows visibility up to the highest ministerial levels of governance at national levels within the GEO structure and and so whether that's you know in in ideal situations uh encouraging or allowing support for for these various efforts whether that's financial or in kind that's quite important i think but it also makes i think elements of scalability and replication much uh much easier to achieve so if you know if particular pilot projects working on floods or or landslides or or seismic hazards uh you know are successful in, in a number of ways in you know one specific pilot area, uh, whether that's it's scaling it up or reproducing it in in other nations or other regions. Uh, Geo is is uh, is very helpful in accomplishing things
0: like that. One of the things that we talk about quite a lot on this podcast is the fact that sort of modern earth observation in inverted commas is um, using a lot of uh, developer-led types of um, processes. And we, we actually, Andrew and I were involved in a, a session at the RSPSOC conference early in September that was looking at what sorts of skills are required going forward in, in the earth observation business. And we were talking about this potential sort of friction between people who want to look at the physics of a system using earth observation and those who are sort of data led and want to just throw as much data as possible into, into a system and then and try and work out the answer that way. In terms of the context of disaster monitoring, are you finding that the new types of organizations, so those that are using sort of a data-led approach, that they're getting involved, that they're being part of the sort of the geo community uh, and approaching CIOs? I think that's very much the case. Yeah,
2: I, I, I would say so. One element that I, I think is related to that, some quite exciting work, I think, that's been going on relatively recently within the CEOS community is, I think, some real forward progress on the topic of analysis ready data. In fact, you know, ARD is talked you know, about often and you always you know have the fundamental issue of the, the definition of ARD as something different to everybody else. But when you take into consideration that uh, not all, but I, I think I'm safe to say the majority of, of national space agencies that are providing Earth observations data are, are active members of CEOS. The fact that the um, CEOS does have a, a published ARD strategy, the CEOS community is, is also developing actual individual product family specifications as well to, to include, you know, threshold and target requirements um, with, you know, general and per-pixel metadata and radiometric and atmospheric and geometric corrections and everything along this line. So it's allowing the, the latter example of what, in your question, if adoption can be realized over the next handful of years, I think it would be amazing if, if you know, most of the world's national space agencies were to You know, pick up the ARD work that's being developed within the CIOs community.
0: I'm going to sort of switch tack a little bit here uh, and maybe move away from GEO and CIOs, although I I guess they'll still feed the the general uh, gist of the conversation. But I was wondering if you could maybe tell us sort of what gets classed as a disaster. I mean, does it need to have a certain number of people being impacted or that sort of thing? And when does a disaster end? So we'll use Earth Observation for the response, but something like uh, the Christchurch earthquake, I can't remember how many years ago it was now, but that they're still building back from the actual disaster itself. And at what point would you stop supplying disaster response Earth Observation services?
2: So I I might I might take this opportunity to maybe just highlight one point that I wanted to try to remember to bring up during this podcast. The idea that the term natural disasters is quite prolific, and there's been a a pretty significant movement that I believe is growing and is actually endorsed by the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, UNTRR, to to try our best to move away from the term natural disasters, because it kind of implies that, that we are helpless to combat disasters because they are natural. And so really emphasizing the distinction between natural hazards and disasters themselves, because while you know, at least on an individual level, we, you know, there's not much we can do to influence natural hazards. But in terms of risk reduction and risk management, uh, and, and if we define risk as the combination of hazards, vulnerability, and exposure, then, then vulnerability and exposure parts of that equation are very much, um, you know, manageable and can be influenced directly through the application of earth. Observations. So, sorry to uh, you know diverge there a little
0: bit. No, no, no. It's an important distinction to make, definitely. So, your question
2: there was essentially where res- where response goes kind of shifts into longer term recovery, and it and is Earth observations still playing a, a consistent role in a- in the longer term?
0: Yeah, it was sort of along the lines of I mean, uh, say a hurricane hit somewhere, and I think the majority of our listeners will be able to understand how you would use earth observation data before the the disaster happened to monitor what was coming. You'd be able to use earth observation data to monitor the impact of whatever the disaster was. But then at what point, do you make the decision to go, okay, well, that disaster's done? Because obviously it takes years to build back from something rather than it sort of being done after a month.
2: I think uh, maybe a good way to, to answer that is, is through uh, perhaps an example. And, and one of our work activities within our CEOS working group disasters is, was originally called a Haiti Recovery Observatory, because you're absolutely right, the re- particularly in the, in the case of Haiti and the, the impacts that they've experienced from, uh, from hurricanes is incredibly long lasting it really is and so the those efforts uh, working with uh, directly with world bank investigated how best to leverage earth observations you know with a longer term scope in mind and the the lessons learned from that activity are, are influencing a, a generic recovery observatory effort that we are in the process of standing up now so that um, we can we can replicate best practices that were learned in terms of uh, the data itself, that it, it is a you know it's, it can be a hurdle. Um, you of course have uh, you know open and free data sources such as NASA and ESA, and that is a, another way that that our uh, our CIOs working group supports that is that we actually do have a, a data coordination team, and we and we do essentially act as a as a broker, for lack of a better word, uh, for for commercial or proprietary data that is in some cases um, provided free of charge within the cios context for the purposes of, of these, these um, research and application efforts.
1: I, I mean, I've got a number of questions, but quite often with disasters, Earth observation images are frequently trotted out across social media to highlight not only the disaster, but the power of Earth observation to communicate that disaster if, if, if that's the right sort of phrasing because quite often in earth observation data if, if there we see no change then that's often good news but that's quite a dry thing to sometimes communicate to the, the general public I, I think the disasters application is quite critical with, within the media how, how do you see that
2: i absolutely think that it is and unfortunately it seems uh, more and more that scales of certain disasters can it's almost getting to the point that to properly capture the scale of some disasters on a a human level is almost only possible in some cases from from earth observations and I I think that they absolutely play a very important role in that regard one one thing that that uh, that comes to mind is our astronauts up on the International Space Station ISS uh, actually contribute to our NASA disasters program and, and take handheld DSLR imagery, which which is then georectified and, and shared out via our, our disasters portal. Yeah, the impact of a, viewing a, a Category 5 hurricane or tropical cyclone yeah. from that perspective is, is incredibly powerful.
1: Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, sometimes we get a news report of humanitarian disaster and you become slightly desensitized to it until you see the imagery and you think wow the scale of this i think that's often people's first sort of interaction with with earth observation as well it has another role to play in in the communication in the media side of things
2: yeah and there's there's certainly there always seems to be a the most significant desire for you know the latest imagery available, uh, highest spatial resolution, et cetera. But the the value really of uh, considering that it seems to me, you know, almost all Earth observations related, you know, disaster applications, almost all seem to boil down to change detection that, you know, time series is is incredibly important as well.
1: It's just looking down at the disasters.nasa.gov latest page this afternoon. And there's this really interesting thing about, the link between soil moisture and fire fire susceptibility. I can't even speak today. Fire susceptibility in California, and I, I think this is quite sort of interesting, and it kind of builds on what Alistair was saying earlier about this sort of almost longitudinal approach of disasters. You know, we often see oh, there's this fire, and it's fire detection and trying to pop that out, but it's also trying to mitigate and manage, and as you say, sort of the perception of risk. I, th- I think is also a, a highly uh, undervalued thing outside perhaps of the disasters management?
2: Yeah, I also think uh, we uh, try to put a significant amount of emphasis as well on, on a I think, a, a somewhat recent shift towards a more uh, systemic thinking approach regarding disaster yeah. risk reduction. Uh, uh, historically, at least on the research and application side, approaches have, I think, been typically very vertically oriented and focused on you know one type of natural hazard, but we're realizing more and more that that none of this happens in a vacuum, and we shouldn't be surprised about how cascading hazards occur. We shouldn't be surprised that landslides occur, you know, in the burn scars following the first major precipitation yeah. events. And maybe not similarly, but also, you know, COVID-19 rapidly evolving from a public health crisis into a socioeconomic one is is another uh, I think you know, kind of example of of that cascading hazards or, or systemic thinking approach that that we're really trying to emphasize within our disasters program.
0: Does COVID fall under your remit as a disaster, or is that a different sort of group that would be looking at that?
2: Um, our program has absolutely been addressing it. Uh, I'd would say okay. Na- NASA broadly has has been addressing it, and both partners and other elements within Geo as well. NASA, uh, ESA, and JAXA have created a, a COVID-19 Earth observations dashboard, where uh, different, you know, different indicators such as air quality, which is I think kind of the expected one, but also economic, you know, agricultural, and water indicators are are investigated from an Earth observations perspective.
1: What is considered to be success for the organizations that you work for? Is it the timely impact of information or is there some or various other metrics that you can measure?
2: So I suppose um, one one measure of success is that we would love for other institutions to, to approach NASA and say we need more NASA data. Right. But another one is that, say, NASA through through our disasters program f- funds you know, a thematic project, whatever it may be focused on with a with a partner. Um, we we work closely with many partners at, at you know everything from local to regional, national, and global scale. But to to work closely with them until the point that they can take on uh, in in a sustained manner that they then take on the you know technical ability to you know ingest and analyze and output you know flood extent or depth maps themselves, and and we can and we within NASA completely step away. And they continue to, to have that ability in a sustained manner. That, to us, is a is a huge win.
1: Yeah. Are you are you ever limited by the data that's available to you? I mean, is there a case of saying, oh, "I really wish we had this data, but it's just not available to to you"? Or do you partner with, or could you partner with things like the Copernicus Emergency Service?
2: Um, we do partner with uh, uh, Copernicus EMS um, on a variety of different different activities. Um, we, we also, uh, our STIOS Working Group on Disasters, uh, um, also quite recently actually formalized an observer status with the International Charter for Disasters. We really need to push the automation, you know, the automated extraction of information from data based on volumes moving forward. But um, I think a really interesting trend that I've, I've watched for a while is, is, is multiple commercial companies releasing you know, proprietary data related to disaster response or risk reduction for free. These companies, you know, they need to balance profit with, you know, essentially, I suppose, the greater good. But it is quite interesting. And I suppose from a, you know, a personal perspective, I, I see it, you know, a significant amount of emerging opportunities and in terms of perhaps, you know, public-private partnerships in the thematic disaster space.
0: This has been fascinating for me in that this is an area that I'm not particularly well versed in. And I think the thing that really interests with me with this, and it, it stems from being involved in a project with GEO earlier in the year, is actually how many countries are on board with this and how many Earth observation practitioners around the world are engaging with the data and doing some really good stuff I was wondering if you could maybe just again with your geo hat on talk very briefly about some of the the global efforts that are are happening like are there specific regions that are are really engaging with the disaster response type work and and pushing that forward or is it all a cohesive single global movement?
2: I suppose maybe the the best way to answer that is is kind of all of the different you know programs and and uh, committees and groups that have that we've talked about so far i can i can firmly say all have either charters or, or terms of reference that directly are aligned to the the un drr sendai framework for disaster risk reduction 2015 to, to 2030 timeline in fact in terms of geo uh, the GEO has three um, engagement priorities, which are the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, and the uh, Paris Accord for Climate. And so both within our NASA program as well as within CIOs and GEO, we align to the the UN Sendai Framework. It's similar to the SDGs in in which it it has um, targets and indicators. There are are national Sendai focal points um, for, for many countries. And these global frameworks, you know, they don't solve all, all of the problems, but they are, I think, quite useful to kind of get every, everybody on the same page. Um, they're actually very useful for that. And there's a, there's a handful of other ones that I think are, are quite important to include the United Nations um, Global Geospatial Information Management, or GGIM. They have a working group on disasters and have a strategic framework on geospatial information and services for disasters. We have activities going on across across the world uh, the geo work program is organized on you know different uh, themes but it's it's also organized uh, geographically with with uh, uh, euro geo afro geo Asia Oceana geo and a geo um, regions and so that's another kind of way that the, the efforts within the group can be uh, organized.
0: That's brilliant. I'm afraid we've sort of run out of time. So I'm going to stop there. But like I say, that has been really fascinating. And it's an area that I think, just listening to you speak, there's a whole raft of other questions that we could go off down data routes or down sort of political construct routes and, and, and down sort of thematic areas as well. So um, yeah, there's loads of food for thought there. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate
2: the opportunity to come on. It's, it's been wonderful.
0: We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Alistair. Thanks, Andrew. Boom.
1: Insert funny thing.